He had amazing ability to wind up, even though he didn't speak English. I liked him actually. I enjoyed it. You know, he was a tough guy, and he was aggressive, and he was he was angry. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts, and download the OTB Sports app. And now, heartbreaking news, really, from um, a rugby fan's perspective, with the news that Eddie Butler has passed away in Peru. He was on a um, a trek to raise funds for a prostate charity and died in his sleep. Uh, the news came through yesterday. Um, Eddie Butler was my favourite commentator of anything in any sport. Any sport, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah like, wow. I just... Um, there was just a period of when I, rugby matches used to go down to the last five or six minutes and they would always be in the mix. And I just found Eddie Butler's voice was like, well, this is amazing. This, this is like... It's very rare where you get somebody who has the lyrical intensity... Uh, and also we had that, yeah. And also, authority at the same time understands that like I can I can raise my tempo here and still has extra places to go. Mm. Obviously, had loads of experience, um, which really, you know, I think really helped. And then they started using them for all the montages, which you know some of them were great and some of them was too much. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember the good ones. Funny enough, you the forget thing. the you forget the ones that didn't really hit home. Yeah, and like. Um, he was excellent at it, and I, I see loads of oh, loads of the uh, Olympians are are linking to those. So it obviously had an impact outside of his own sport of rugby as well. But um, if there was a crap match of rugby on, I would be sucked into watching it because Eddie Butler was doing co- uh, doing commentary, and like Brian Moore was spiky, and they would row in the commentary mm. box. Yeah. Like there would be a no 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 no, uh, which you don't get. Like normally there's like a an alpha and a subservient, mm-hmm. and um, you know, rugby has plenty of that. <laughs> like, uh, or when the second alpha shouldn't be that guy, and that annoys you. When there's too much kind of answering back. Um, you know what I mean? If Martin Tyler decided to to have a, 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 a bee in his bonnet and take on Gary Neville in the middle of the commentary, I don't think it would work. It needs to be a certain personality. It needs to be natural. Yeah. And yeah. The it's best very, relationship, I think, is when you have an analyst who will challenge the play-by-play commentator but not step over their mark too much. Yeah, and they, I, they had a dynamic that I thought was excellent. And I would actually, I would seek them out when when there were games on whatever they were on, like also BBC had HD before everybody else, so the quality picture that you were getting from them, mm. I just thought it was a superior product to anything else that was available. And I was like really sad to hear this because he was only 65, you know? 65, unbelievable. Very fair commentator I found as well. You know, the I never... You have this natural thing as a fan, and Jerry, you know that I'm worse than nearly anybody at this. But you know, you get sucked up in the moment, and you do get very into your team. But I always, I never found, as you would with almost every other commentator, that there was like a natural bias. Yeah, even in Wales games, you know, never, never felt it. But also was like really passionate about Wales. You could tell that too. Like just he had the the voice was just pitch perfect. And when you think that Bill McLaren retired, the official voice of rugby. They were some shoes to step into. And I think he surpassed McLaren. I have to say, McLaren had that amazing voice. It'll never be forgotten. And was a trailblazer. But well, you in terms point. of better commentary... Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I probably didn't see enough of McLaren, but um, he's on John Lomu, so you know, he can't, can't beat that. <laughs> uh, you were making the point earlier, though, that like accented voices doing this is so unusual now. So McLaren obviously had a distinctive Scottish brogue. You would know exactly where... Eddie Butler is from. Uh, in fairness, um, the Scottish guy who did the dogs in um, Twitter, whose name's Cotter, Andrew Cotter, yeah, he's definitely Scottish, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but most of the other commentators, 
uh, certainly any of the ones working on those channels in England, they all kind of sound fairly similar. They all probably went to the same three or four public schools. And There's so a bit of received pronunciation, I think, about the general rugby voice that you hear, whether that's updates or commentary now. And the regional thing, because Eddie is so lyrical and so beautiful as well, he adds something slightly different. It's distinctive. Totally. And um, when, so we, we went over to have a bit of crack in Wales. Well, Owen went over to have a bit of crack in Wales and caused a bit of trouble with the Welsh fans. Not, not big fans of our show in particular when, you know, we've sometimes uh, on OTVAM walked ourselves into some trouble. Overset um, the line. Uh, you know, it's all, it's, uh, is that not the whole point of being a sports fan? Particularly in advance of games to taunt your opponents and then wake up with scrambled egg all over your face? Yeah, for all some reason, we only really go for it against Wales. I think it's like the uh, in, in uh, it was when we were playing them in football all the time as well, we were doing it. I, don't, I think it's something that's like, yeah. they're the only people, they're the only country near us that we kind of think we're better than. Well, also, that will take it well. <laughs> they will totally take it well, you know. I mean, I'd say uh, we think we're better than the Scots. Uh, overall, yeah. Um, we're afraid of Scotland, though. Well, John Hartson came on and gave us what for it. It was great. We, <laughs> yeah. we appreciate that. Uh, but we sent Owen over and he set up an interview with Eddie Butler and I didn't know anything about Eddie Butler's politics. I'd never heard him speaking about it before. But it turns out he's a Welsh nationalist and he had some really, really interesting things to say. So, you know, we, we thought we could speak to people today about Eddie Butler's career or we could just offer you an opportunity to listen to himself talking about the things that were important to him. And this was recorded in February this year um, by Owen Sheehan ahead of the Ireland-Wales game. Uh, there wasn't much, by way, in confidence in Wales of the quality of rugby that they were going to get, but there's far more important things going on in Wales at the moment. So we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side of it, the next voice you're going to hear will be Owen Sheehan in conversation with Eddie Butler. So I was born in Newport uh, and have been in, in, in rural Monmouthshire for, well, a great many years now. But it's a lovely spot. It's a great place to live. What does it mean to be Welsh in this part of the country? Well, it's a strange one because, you know, in the great uh, checklist of what being Welsh is, to be from Monmouthshire would rank pretty low. It's quite an anglicised county. You wouldn't get much Welsh language spoken spoken here. Uh, you know, for, for many years, uh, it was almost described as Wales and Monmouthshire, which was a, a sort of clerical glitch for, for, for many years, but the, the, the truth is that it has always been a Welsh county. You know, Gwent is a is one of the great kingdoms of, of ancient Wales, and so um, we are firmly planted in Wales. And uh, uh, yeah, but we are regarded <coughs> with a degree of suspicion, I suppose, for simply because it is a little bit more anglicised, and there are many commuters who live here who go over the bridge to Bristol to work, and uh, you know. It's uh, Gloucestershire is next door, the the other way through the Forest of Dean. So, yeah, we are we are connected to England. There's no there's no doubt about it. You know, we are a border county. How do you find your own identity as a young Welsh boy and man? Is is it a period of time where your parents are, are, are deeply entrenched in in the region and, and speak about the things that you speak about now, or or how does that come about for you? That this idea of, of of Welsh identity? No, I'd say my parents were English. They they came to Wales. My father was from uh, Scunthorpe, from a steel mining, fam- a steel working family. My mother came from London. And after the Second World War, they met at, um, in Bomber Command in, in High Wycombe during the Second World War. And um, my father was a scientist, and so he, um, he worked on radar 
in the war, but then went back to Birmingham University and um, was a chemist. And he came down in what really was the last great wave of investment in in Wales. That, um, uh, for example, in Merthyr Tydfil, the great iron town of Merthyr Tydfil, Hoover uh, started to build washing machines. Uh, and in, in Estrid Gunlice, further west, they had the TikTok factory, which is the watch factory made by Smiths, uh, watches made by Smiths. Uh, so they were looking beyond the age of iron and coal and steel to what we could do next. And in Pontypool, they, they built the nylon factory. And my father came to work in this brand new production centre for nylon and so it was a period of great optimism and they came there having had very much a British identity during the war the war effort they felt part of that they felt that you know only together as one Britain could they defeat Nazism so they believed in it so you know if you'd have asked them about Welsh independence they'd have said definitely not but in the period of my life you know that that has changed because there has no, there has been no further great investment in Wales. Uh, Wales has been abandoned basically by by the overlord, by the the landlord, England. Um, government government in Westminster has become a, a more brutal, harder place. Um, and so to fight a to fight a Welsh corner has. Uh, well, it started off as a small scrap, but it is growing, and it is, and it's, uh, you know, the theme of independence, of devolved powers at least, is on the increase. It definitely seems that, and this is pure straw poll from chatting to people over the last couple of days, it is a conversation. Uh, it's also a conversation that people like to conclude with by saying something like, it's not going to happen, or there is no financial incentive for us to ever separate from the United Kingdom. Is that the, the real experience, or, or have I just ended up stumbling upon people who, who are all of the same view? No, there's a terrible lack of self-confidence in Wales. There's, there's no question that we, <clears throat> in general, we simply do not feel we are strong enough or even brave enough to take on the responsibilities of governing ourselves. And there's a saying that the Welsh make great foot soldiers, but they don't produce officer. There's no officer class in Wales because the decisions are left to others. Um, and we have to disprove that. There is, a, there is a truth that young people leave Wales to go and find jobs elsewhere. And so we have to get those people, those those people who can take on uh, big jobs and big responsibilities, we have to get them to come back to Wales, uh, which is going to be a challenge. You know, it's, uh, if you neglect a land for so long, then the incentives to come home are, are limited. So we are starting from, a, from a, a low base point. But that is part of the problem, that you have to ask the question, why is Wales in such a, a poor state? And it is because the Westminster government has abandoned it. And we have to do something about it. The Westminster government give Wales the money to look after itself, they say, to run the devolved government, the devolution, the Senev in Cardiff. But that money on its own left Wales in a state where it automatically qualified for emergency European funding. And now that funding has gone because we have left the European Union. We are left with this block 
um, granted according to the Barnet formula and we're stuck with it and it is never going to be enough so we are always going to be impoverished unless we do something about it ourselves very interesting what you say there there's a, there's a load there but what I'm interested in is I guess the sporting context of what you talk about there is no officer class in Wales whereas quite often what we see on the rugby pitch for example is you know officer class in, in 15 shirts almost and the, the, it is the idea of, of heart and soul and uh, the passion of this country going into the rugby jersey so why is that at odds with the, 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 the stereotype of or the description I should say sorry of, of Wales that you've just given there well it's a problem because Come the Six Nations, for example, we all turn into rabid, passionate Welsh people standing up for Welshness. And then we play England and it reaches its spike, especially on that one day. And the things you'll hear in the changing room, you would think, oh my God, here is a country, a small country, truly at war with the big neighbour. But come Monday, when it's all done, the conversation dies. So it always struck me that there was so much passion on the day, but on the Monday, where it all gone? So I think it, it is, in, in geopolitical terms, a phony way of looking at Wales, that it's, it's, it is a stereotype that come rugby days, we all get hugely in, inflamed, but it leads nowhere. So we have to be able to tap into that passion and make it last a lot longer and, and, and be turned to the real issues. I mean, it, it is only a sporting occasion, but there's a real life to lead as well. And we have to make sure that that Welsh passion is focused on the real problems. Can I ask you about the game you played against England in 1980 then? Because this is possibly one of the more famous examples of the fire and brimstone existing in the dressing room and indeed on the pitch. Um, what, what is your memory of that game, first of all? And, and, and for people who don't know the game, what happened? Well, Wales had a golden era in the 1970s, the age of Gareth Edwards and Phil Bennett and Barry John and all the greats of the game. And I arrived on the day that golden era ended. <laughs> so in the 80s, in 1980, we were faced with having a new team because the greats had retired, we had to have a point of restart. And uh, off we went. And it was very passionate and very... Uh, it, 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 it went along according to all the norms of uh, the Welsh tradition of, of um, overcooking ourselves when it came to going to Twickenham in association with a steelworkers strike that was taking place at the same time on a day when there was five miles of thick cloud over Twickenham so the theatre was almost black at midday with, uh, with a team that well I think the, that England thought that we were there for the taking but there was some sort of residual tradition which said that the Welsh travelled in huge numbers to Twickenham. So there was, there was a very, very big uh, contingent of Welsh fans there. And they created an atmosphere which was downright hostile. Because there's, there's England thinking Wales are there for the taking. There's the Welsh audience saying, no, that, that ain't going to happen. And, 
and yeah, it kicked off a bit. I mean, it had, in fact, it was it was the second game of the championship. The first game against France at home had probably been even more violent. Right. Um, but this one, it's. You know, for me, it was my second cap. I played in one violent game. A second violent game started. So I'm just thinking, well, this is obviously how international rugby is. And so you know, I knew no different. Um, but we had the Irish referee, David Burnett. And I I do feel sorry for him because it was it was worse than, than usual. And there was this palpable hostility all around. You know, it, it does take something to get an English crowd stirred. But they were definitely in a mood for for violence, and you can feel it. You could feel it, and uh, you know, <laughs> I suppose the players provided it. It was it was a it was a violent game, no question. There were you know there were things going on that um, you know if you think nowadays with all the all the means of detecting foul play. Oh my God! We'd have, there would have been no ball in play time because we'd have been stopping for TMO reviews every every twenty seconds. But um, yeah, it, it uh, and it ended. It, it, in fact, it ended a bit tamely because the the incident for which Paul Ringer was sent off was he brushed John Horton with an elbow, but because the referee had said next one goes, he'd sort of uh, he'd laid it down, and so. Yeah, it, uh, I've seen worse on a field. I'd, I'd seen worse before that on that very same pitch. <laughs> uh, when you say a moment ago that, that there are times when you were in uh, the Welsh dressing room and you look around and everybody in the Welsh jerseys and you think, right, this is a, a country ready to go to war. I presume 1980 against England was, was one of those days. Oh, especially that day. Especially. You know, that's what that's what sort of sparked this conversation I I had with myself about. What it is to be Welsh, and um, it struck me that you know I'd never seen this. You know, I play for Pontypool, which is uh, which is in this bottom right-hand corner of Wales, and we never used Welshness as a as a, as a weapon in our armoury. We were pretty violent in our own right, but that we we, we didn't actually take much stirring. <laughs> but um, it was uh, we didn't rely on the Welshness thing. We relied more on our own identity, the little pond of pool, you know, up and at them, sort of. We saw no bigger picture. We certainly didn't attach ourselves to any Welsh picture. In fact, we almost used being the outsiders from this bottom right-hand corner when it came to playing other Welsh teams as they don't think we're proper Welshier. So, so, you know, you can see there are many tears to this Welshness. We do have, we do have almost, it is almost an apartheid system of Welshness, you know, and at the very top, and maybe not by their own design. You would have the Welsh speakers from, from the north, northwest, and from Carmarthenshire and, and Ceredigion, the natural-born Welsh speakers who survived thousands of years you know, from, from Roman days, all those that wanted to suppress their language, they have survived it, and they still speak their language. And then you have the influx of, through, through more modern industrial times, the great influx of English-speaking people who have become Welsh by, by, by living here, by just absorbing something of that, but without speaking the language. And now they represent the majority. And there is a conflict between the two, or there was a conflict between the two. 
that if you were English speaking Welsh, you always felt slightly looked down on by the Welsh speakers, and the Welsh speakers felt slightly resentful that there were so many non-Welsh speakers in their country. So there has been this internal conflict, and of course the English were only too happy to let this state of affairs exist because they could always say, well, oh, Welsh, you don't even get on amongst yourselves. How can you ever be a, a united country? But I think it has ended now. I think it has come to an end, and there are various reasons that we have finally embraced devolution which has worked, that we do have, whether we like it or not, a Welsh voice, a Welsh political voice, and it, and it has helped. And we do have Welsh uh, radio and we have Welsh television, Radio Cymru and uh, S4C television, which is a, a service in the Welsh language which takes a lot of heat off, off this desperate, des desperation to keep the language alive. And this is a cultural fight for survival. But having a broadcasting service means that it's, it's, it's not safe, but it is safer. Do you have to, at some level, detach the idea of Welsh independence from the language? Because is it a situation where it's not realistic for, for a language like that to, to grow and to, to find a whole pile of, of, of new voices and is that a way almost a stick to beat the Welsh movement with that it's like look at all these English speakers they don't even speak the language yeah yeah so we come to the contradictions you know for this movement for the, for the movement of Welsh independence to, to gain traction we have to persuade I say we I mean Wales I say I am, I am deeply committed to it we have to persuade the English speakers of Wales that it is not going to be an operation in force-feeding the Welsh language down their throats. Uh, and we have to persuade the Welsh speakers that their independence will not be English-based. And f for me, there is a solution. You, you simply... It is a cultural battle being fought there's a gentler solution that instead of force-feeding adults who are, who are so set in their ways that they don't like change you think the Welsh language will start at primary school so the children, our children and our grandchildren will be taught in the Welsh medium and they will absorb it so easily and then that generation then is taught in Welsh in secondary school and within two generations, you have people who are speaking Welsh as naturally as French is spoken in France. And nobody's been force-fed. England, English, is always a, a good backup language. You know, from Portugal to Norway, people have English as a, as a backup language. It, it's, it's an advantage that in Wales we, we speak it pretty well. So you have English as the backup and you promote Welsh through the schools. And don't forget, it was in, the, in those very schools that the English government targeted the suppression of the Welsh language. So by a neat twist, you turn it on them and say, we're going back to the schools to, um, to seamlessly promote the Welsh language. But it is important. There is no dividing the Welsh language from Welsh independence. Yeah. Because it makes us, it makes us what we are. True. Yeah. You know. <laughs> what about the division then between 
the idea of independence and the idea of, of nationalism, which has taken on, uh, I guess, a, a toxic hue over the last little while. The idea of nationalism, is, is that something that you're mindful of? Is that is that even a consideration? Because that's up to everybody else to make their own mind up on, on that perception. Yeah, nationalism is one of those words that it is very easy to toxify because to- nationals, nationalists are Serbian militiamen who carry out massacres. Franco of Spain was a nationalist and it, 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 it's a bad word. I'm, I am merely a seeker of independence That's, and I think we should stress the, the independence rather than this national. Nationalism implies a, a sense of superiority and I genuinely do not feel that we have that in Wales. We don't, we don't want to be better than anybody. We don't feel better than anybody. We just want to be ourselves. We should chat a little bit about the rugby and uh, one of the, uh, the the elements before we get into what's actually going to happen on the pitch is what's going to happen in your commentary booth uh, this weekend. Your, yourself and Brian Moore, the, the happy couple, uh, unfortunately, will your, your days are numbered together. I think Brian is stepping away from the mic this weekend, uh, after this weekend, I think. So I gather, I mean, he, he'll be doing England-Scotland, I, I imagine, which, um, yeah, I, we do go back a long way. Um, He's been he's been brilliant. You know, he was deeply suspicious of me when we first started working together. I because I was in I was working for the Observer and the BBC back in the day when he was the barracroom lawyer with the great English side of the early nineties. And of course, you know, the, the rapport between the media and current players is always a bit strained and a bit tense. And it was in our day, but we sort of got. He sort of muddled along at first, and I think it was probably a seminal moment when we were we were we were quite young. Me as a commentator, and he as a, a, a second voice, and we were walking back towards the, the city centre of Rome after an it- Italy France game, and we said, "Well, let's have a quick beer." And we walked into this bar, and it was a big bar populated entirely by people from the Basque region. And Brian walked in, and the whole place stopped. And they they advanced towards him, instantly recognising who he was. And these were days when England used to go, and there was war in Paris, and Lascube and um, Moscato had been sent off with Brian snarling in their face. Uh, Stephen Hilditch, I think, was the referee who sent them off. So there was an Irish involvement as well, you know. So it was um, it was pretty tense. And, but the great thing was that the Basques ad- advanced towards Brian. You know, let's say thirty of them. Brian advanced towards the Basques <laughs> and as they got chin to chin they suddenly went oh my god but you are so small yeah. and he said small and the next thing he's doing he's organising a scrummage session in the bar so he says alright you Basques you organise a scrummage your side and he, and he rounded up a, 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 a load of Italian waiters to come and be his pack around him and, they, and I said, well, 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 what shall I do? He said, you can be scrum half. So I'm uh, rolling up beer mats to, into, a, into a ball. And uh, uh, he says to the Basques, right, it's, uh, it's your put-in. You just have to strike for the ball and, uh, and you'll have made your point that I'm no good. So he did one of those little things that front row forwards do. And the little Basque hooker who was a player, I mean, he was a proper player, he said, I cannot move. <laughs> and he just could not move his right foot to strike for the ball. Wow. 
And, that, and so they got up and they, hmm. And then he said, right, now it's how my put in. So he said, like, re-pad the ball and go down. And he says to the bassist, right, you can do whatever you like to me. And they do, so he's there and he's... he's nose is on the floor and he's bent and buckled and the Italian team around him, the Italian waiters aren't giving him much support but this little tap comes so I put the rolled up pile of beer mats in and from nowhere from under his nose he effortlessly sweeps the ball back out of the scrum and he left to a standing ovation so that's my Brian Wow, that's incredible, one hell of a way to prove a point Yeah I presume it brings back quite a few memories for you, actually, the, the, the trips to Dublin with either in the commentary boot or, or in the, the Red of Wales, indeed. Yeah, you know, part of me misses the old Lansdowne Road, the, the old tip. I loved it there, you know, cause it, just because of the atmosphere. In fact, there was only one better atmosphere than Lansdowne Road, and that was Crow Park. And the day that Ireland played England at Crow Park for the first time, oh, my God, I, when they sang... When they sang, God Save the Queen, and you sort of went, what is happening here? Because they'd been expecting protests outside the stadium, but they sang God Save the Queen courteously. And then when it came to the Irish anthems, they belted it out with a passion. You know, you talk, we've talked a lot about Welsh passion, but on that day, it was spine-chilling. You know, the effect of that Crow Park crowd on the home team must have been, must have been, you know, I, I'm not sure what advantage it gave them, but it was an overwhelming advantage. Brilliant day, great day. But I loved Lansdowne Road. I did, and uh, the, the game after the Paul Ringer game in 1980, uh, the next, we played at home, the next away game was at Lansdowne Road, and by then the firm instruction had been given, no retaliation. Anybody swings a punch, raises a foot in anger, will never play for Wales again. So they'd taken our spurs away, and Ireland beat us up. They sensed the opportunity. I just, you know, destroyed us, destroyed us. Um, what sort of stuff it, are we talking when you mention beating okay. up here? Fair and foul. Yeah. You know, again, it goes back to that sense that, you know, Ireland had suffered in the 70s against Wales and now against a tender team that um, had suddenly had its licence to retaliate removed, that this was, this was a, a, a rich pickings could be had. No, they beat, beat us up by fair means and by foul. And fair dues to them, you know, we'd, we'd do exactly the same. Um, but it marked a, it was a very important moment that you know you, you cannot allow Welsh rugby with all its traditions of standing up as the little people against the big guys you cannot take away their their energy and their passion and their propensity towards a bit of skullduggery just otherwise if you do that Welsh rugby will cease to exist so you have to allow it to prosper on its own terms and it took a lot it took a long time to get over that but we got there we got there and we survived the entry into the professional age which again was another miracle because when you come to wales you always enter the you have to cross the bread line you enter the poverty zone and wales was so well equipped to deal with professionalism but again it comes back to the tenacity of the welsh people to use the the odds against them in their favor 
And, again, and, and I come back to this whole thing about being good foot soldiers, that when Warren Gatland arrived in 2008, the first thing he did, he said, I don't want any questions, I don't want any orders, I want you to listen, and I want you to obey. And he got them fit, and he got them organised, and these magnificent foot soldiers went out and won him a Grand Slam in his first season.